Evening, everyone. It's lovely to see you this morning. If you're out at our morning service, I mentioned there'll be a funeral here in the church on Wednesday. A lady, Betty Johnson, who used to attend the church, is being buried. We're not sure of the time yet, and um, it's to do with some documentation that needs sorted out tomorrow. But the plan at the moment is it for it to be at one o'clock for those who are to attend. If you are planning to come to the funeral and you want to check the time, we should know tomorrow. You can contact me and I'll let you know. There is a list out in the hallway for anybody who's able to help with catering, either with food or to help May to serve afterwards. And if you want to find out more, you can speak to May. It would be a great, great help. But let's pray. Let's pray for a grieving family at the moment. And let's pray that God really bless us as we think about spiritual things here this evening. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you that you're a great God. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that he is kind and strong, as we've sung about. And we pray for a grieving family. We pray for Betty's family, for her sons, Mervyn and Robert. May the God of grace and comfort them, be kind and strong to them at the moment. We pray for a funeral service, and we pray as your word is shared, that it may bring comfort and hope and light uh, to a family, to friends, and to those who attend. We pray for us this evening. We pray for us as we think about spiritual things. We've already heard your word as it's read. We'll think about some more verses and a life well lived for Christ our Savior. And we pray, Lord God, that you would work in each of our hearts and each of our lives. Bless us, we pray. We pray for songs that we'll sing later, for prayers that will take part in the service later on, for fellowship as we enjoy conversation. Bless us, edify us, build us up, and help our eyes be fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Bless us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Now, this morning I preached on Joshua 2, and we thought about that great Bible character, uh, Rahab. And one of the things I mentioned this morning is that New Testament reference we'll find Rahab in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is a wonderful chapter. For some people, it could be their favorite chapter in the Bible. It's one of my favorite chapters. It lists these great men and women of faith. And right at the end of Hebrews 11, we come into Hebrews 12, and it says, seeing we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. That's what the people in Hebrews 11 are. They're a cloud of witnesses. They, they witness, they speak of faith in Christ. It then comes on to these words that I quoted in my prayer. Seeing we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off anything that hinders and fix our eyes on Jesus. And so ultimately as believers, our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus. He is our perfect example. He's the one we learn from. He's the one we model. He's the one we follow. But we don't discard the cloud of witnesses because there's great lessons that we can learn from their lives about their faith, about their lives, and about them following God as well. And in Hebrews 11, right at the start, it gives you a definition in verse 1 of what faith is. And in verse 4, it gives the first example of faith in Christ. I wonder a little quiz question here. Let's see if you're awake on a Sunday night. Who's the first person on the list in Hebrews 11? Maybe not the obvious person. Nobody's nose or too shy. It's actually Abel. Abel, who was killed by his brother, but he showed faith in that he was obedient to God's word, and he brought a sacrifice that was pleasing and acceptable. And in Hebrews 11 and verse 4, it says these words, after it tells us about Abel, here's what it says. And through his faith, though he died, 
he still speaks. Through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. He lived thousands of years ago. He's dead. He's buried. And yet his life and his faith and his witness still speaks. Treasure Island, Robert Louis Stevenson's famous book, has a character in it called Long John Silver. And one of his lines in that book is, dead men tell no tales. Dead men tell no tales because dead men can't speak. Dead people do speak. Hebrews 11 says that. Though he died, he still speaks. The heroes of the faith still speak to us today. They teach us great lessons about faith in Jesus Christ. And every so often on a Sunday evening, I like to give a little biographical sketch of a Christian, somebody who's been, who's lived a life for Christ, who's dead, who's gone, but still their life can speak to us today. I like to do this occasionally to share their story and let them continue to speak to us and teach us about faith in Jesus Christ. The first one I did, which was a few years ago, was Jim Elliott, a famous missionary martyr. He was killed in Ecuador, a great hero of mine. The second one I did was just over a year ago was of Eddie McCluskey, not quite as famous as Jim Elliott, one a lot closer to home. He was my grandfather, a professional golfer who gave it all up because he wanted to put Christ first in his life. Tonight, what we want to do is come even closer to home. Tonight, I want to focus on somebody who was born in Carrick and their early life started here in this church. This morning, we brought three new members into our church family. What I have here in my hands now is the membership book of Carrick Baptist Church, or as the front says, Baptist Church Carrick Fergus, right from the start of our church in 1862. And it's interesting to turn to the opening page because it lists the name of the first three members of this church. So David Pasley, Samuel McComb, don't know if it was a relation, Ivan, and James Weatherup, and 1862, the 17th of August, when the church was formed. There's also a little side note here. All the three original members were baptized in Belfast Lock at Sea Park, Belfast Road. Praise the Lord for heated baptismal tanks. The thought of that would be something else. And so they were our founding members and then there was another fourth member added in September of that year, and another one in October. And so the church started from very slow, humble beginnings. Now, as somebody who majored in history as part of my education degree, I love books like this. Books like this are real living history. They tell stories. It's not just a list of names. The notes down the side tell little stories and give us glimpses into the history here of these, this church, people who belonged here, people who left a legacy that we still build on today. Now, around the turn of the 20th century, around the early 1900s, if you flick through a few pages here, it's interesting the number of people who left this church and moved on, hopefully not because they'd fallen out with this church, but because they were moving into Belfast and the assumption of that was they moved from Carrick to Belfast for, for work and employment. And quite a few of them, as recorded here, left Carrick Baptist to join Regent Street Baptist Church in Belfast, which is not one I have heard of. Dave, does it ring a bell? Anybody know anything? Regent Street Baptist? Does it make... Could be. Well, there's some connection. Quite a few moved on, probably to say to find work. But here's the other thing you notice around the turn of the century. The number of people who left this church, a small church, 
to emigrate to different parts of the world. And so you'll read the notes here, left for America, left for Australia, left for Canada. It must have had a huge impact upon a small church as these, probably young people, young families got up and set sail for a new life in different parts. One lady who's listed is an entry from May 1914. And uh, two months before World War I started, we find this entry. Ethel Carson, and then it tells us her maiden name, Nee Weatherup, so probably related to one of the founding members of the church. She became a member in May 1914. And then it tells us about her leaving as well. It tells us about her leaving in April 1915. And she left here because she was emigrating to Ottawa uh, to join with her husband there. And it also says in the note that she left with her two young boys as well. I often wondered why it just says Ethel Carson. It tells us her maiden name, so she was obviously married. Why is her husband not listed here? And as you flick through the pages, her no husband never becomes a member of the church. The reason I've discovered he never became a member is that he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a believer, and so he couldn't become a member of the church. And so this lady, Ethel Carson, she was a member of this church for just under a year, left with her two sons, and set sail on a long voyage to Canada for the start of a new life. The Father John had actually gone on before to find work as a printer, and he continued in that job until he retired. So, Nev, you're a printer. Thank goodness you don't have to go to Canada to find work and find employment. That's why he headed across at that stage. Now, thankfully, the father John, the husband John, became a believer a few months before he died, and probably an answer to Ethel's many years of prayer. But tonight, I don't want to focus on Ethel Carson. I don't want to focus on her husband John. I want to focus on her younger son, Tom Carson. And he was here in the church with his mother. The father was over in Canada working, so he would have come with his mother for those short time. His story has been captured. His story has been recorded, recorded in this wonderful book, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And so because the story has been recorded from his diaries, from his entries, I want to share it with you tonight. Tom was born in Carrickfergus, on the 26th of August, 1911. So several months before the Titanic set sail, the family lived in Bonnie Before, down on the, the shore there of Belfast Lock. Perhaps they saw, the, the mother Ethel saw the Titanic as it left Belfast Lock. His mom, Ethel, as Rory said, was a faithful Christian woman. And when they arrived in Canada, she joined Calvary Baptist Church in Ottawa, and she faithfully taught her children the gospel. And as a teenager in high school, Tom Carson trusted Jesus Christ as a savior. Now, somebody who has had a great influence upon his life was a man called Mr. Blair. Mr. Blair was an elderly member of Calvary Baptist Church, and he devoted his time to the young men in the church. He devoted his time to having a spiritual impact. Let me pause there. We need Mr. Blairs in this church, older saints, people with wisdom and experience who will commit themselves to invest in the younger members of our church. And what he used to do is he set up regular Bible studies. Tom Carson would have come along 
And these Bible studies had a huge impact upon his young life. And as a result, in 1933, at the age of 22, Tom headed to train for pastoral ministry at Toronto Baptist Seminary. So from early days in Carrickfergus to Toronto Baptist Seminary. And I was uh, bid to train for ministry, as he said. Now, we need to stop there and think. He went in 1933. If you know anything about world history, that was the middle of the Great Depression. Money was tight and scarce. And this was a commitment that Tom would make. He believed God was calling him into pastoral ministry. And he made a commitment to a difficult situation for the sake of the gospel. And that was something that would mark the rest of his life. There was no financial help from home, as Tom's father, still an unbeliever, thought he was making a terrible mistake. And on at least one occasion, Tom traveled the 200 miles from Toronto to the family home in Ottawa to visit his parents by riding his bicycle. Think about that, 280 miles on a bike. Canada, Ottawa can be very cold in winter as well. Tom used his time at Bible College to prepare for future ministry. But there were other blessings there as well. There was a blossoming romance with a lady called Marge Mabry. She's the lady in the picture in front of the book as well. She had been a student the year ahead of Tom at the Bible College. Marge was originally from London and had emigrated to Canada with her siblings and widowed mother when she was 14 years of age. More than two years older than Tom, Marge was already a nurse and midwife. And in terms of grades at the seminary, she usually beat him. Her grades were always higher. Now, after years at Bible college, he returned to nursing and applied to three different missions, volunteering to serve in Africa. All the mission organizations turned Marge down for health reasons. And so she agreed to marry Tom instead. And they married on the 28th of April, 1938. Talk about being the second best option. Mission fields, can't go there. I'll marry you instead. After Bible college, Tom believed God was calling him to serve the Lord in French-speaking Quebec. Not only were there challenges with the language, but it was a hard area to minister. Quebec at that time was the most Catholic nation in the world. Think of maybe Ireland at the turn of the, the last, or early parts of the last century. It was that kind of place to go and witness and minister. Not only were there challenges with the language, but the obstacles that he faced. Evangelical witness in Quebec was extremely difficult. Between 1950 and 52, Baptist pastors working in Quebec spent a total of eight years between them in jail for simply preaching the gospel. And this was the area Tom committed the rest of his life and ministry to proclaiming the gospel. Tom's initial focus was working among the 85% of the people in Montreal whose mother tongue was French. He started by advertising and offering free French New Testaments as most Catholic families did not in those days possess any part of the Bible. Tom usually followed up these mailings by further correspondence and a visit. And this was Tom's way of getting to get, trying to get Bible studies with interested people up and going. Now, Montreal is a spread out city. Tom had no car, so he resorted to public transport and bicycle to go and visit anybody who showed any sort of interest. He encountered lots of opposition, and very little fruit or spiritual openings. One letter that was sent to him dated 17th of June, 1945, reads as such. Dear Pastor, several days ago I asked my wife why the pastor had abruptly stopped visiting us. She replied in an angry voice that you had indeed come to the door, 
but that she had not let you in and had given you back the Bible. Then she blew up in a violent scene over my prospective change of religion, religion, warning me that if I converted, that would be the end of our marriage. So I must apologize to you for the strange and incomprehensible attitude my wife has adopted. If I am to have peace, you will understand that I'm obligated to bend to her will. There's a man under authority. I will always be grateful to you for the several hours of instruction you kindly gave me. I close, Pastor, with all the respect owed you, asking the Lord that he may give you strength and courage for the mission with which you have been charged, however ungrateful it is received, as it brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Tom faithfully kept visiting people, asking for opportunities to Bible studies, with many, many doors closed in his face. Contacts and conversions were few and far between, but Tom faithfully and quietly kept plodding on, looking for some blessings and signs of spiritual growth. One man who was converted by, giving a Bible, by being given a Bible was called Charles, who became a great help and started to assist Tom with door-to-door ministry. Tom's help was soon requested in another part of that area, in Drummondville, a city of about 30,000 people, similar to the size of Carrickfergus, several miles east of Montreal. A small group of Christians there were asking for pastoral help. Drummondville was at least 95% French and Catholic as well. Tom took up the pastoral responsibility in that town in 1949, and by this stage, he and Marge had three children, Joyce, Jim, and Dawn. And with a young family and a fledgling bilingual church, Tom and Marge had their hands full. The church was very poor, so the Carson family had to live in the church building, which had been a converted house. So Josie, Ruby, and Molly, you fancy that? Living in the church building? Because that's the only place you could find to live. In a letter to your friend dated 16th of May, 1949, Tom writes the following. The attendances last Sunday were good. In the morning, we had 38 out, the most for any Sunday since I've come here. I just noticed from my records there were 15 on our first Sunday, just one year ago. In that way, there is greater reason for encouragement. In the French service, we were grateful that we had 11 out, seven of whom were French Canadians. Our Sunday school has 19. There were five one year ago. Sadly, the encouragements would be few and far between. Work was slow and tough and lonely. As people came, like they did, those numbers raised up to 35, but sadly many of those people drifted away. It's not uncommon for converts to be ostracized by their families, and if they ran their own business, they would easily be shut down. In Drummondville, a shoemaker with his own thriving shop was wonderfully converted, along with his wife, through Tom's ministry. As soon as conversion became clear to his neighbors, the local priest applied pressure, and he lost 90% of his business. He struggled to carry on. Some months later, in the middle of the night, his shop was burned to the ground. The authorities acknowledged it had been torched, but of course, no one was ever arrested and charged. The couple decided to leave the area and resettle in English-speaking Windsor, Ontario, 700 miles away. In the 1950s, such comp stories were not uncommon throughout Quebec. There were only a handful of evangelical churches in the area, and many of the pastors who entered the work during that period quickly burned out. The ministry required faithful plodders. And thankfully, Tom Carson was a faithful plodder. However, he was plagued by his own internal struggles and doubts, a constant feeling of inferiority with which he would wrestle with for the rest of his life. 
Compared with some of the more dramatic things happening in churches in other parts of Canada, his ministry seems slow, dull, and ordinary. In March 1959, trouble started in the Belgian Congo, and many of the missionaries had to come home. And they came home, and as they came home, they brought with them the knowledge of the French language. So looking around for another Francophone part of the world where they might serve, many of them came home from the Congo and started to minister alongside Tom in Quebec. Sadly, not one of them lasted more, more than six months in ministry in that area. Tom's son, Don, once asked him why this was the case. Why did they all drop out after a few months? He replied, you have to understand that we have been used, they have been used to serving in a part of the world where they have seen such blessing. They are used to considerable crowds. They have built clinics and hospitals. They have seen many people converted and helped to train pastors to teach them. And then they've arrived here and find everything to be so slow. How are they likely to read this, except to conclude that they must have, mis they must have misunderstood their call to Quebec since no fruit seems to be forthcoming? Don went on to ask him, well, why don't you go to some part of the world where there would be much fruit instead of staying here and producing so little? Tom replied, I stay because I believe God has many people in this place. Referring, of course, to the encouragement Paul, God gave to the Apostle Paul in Corinth and Acts 18. I stay because I believe God has many people in this place. Time would prove this to be correct. But even Tom became discouraged with the lack of fruit and began to blame his own weaknesses. He writes in his diary, I tried, but power was lacking. Only a very few have come to the Lord. Oh, so few. I have accomplished nothing. I am discouraged, but I'm trying to put quitting entirely out of my mind. Together, Tom and Marge resolved to seek the face of God in intercession and a renewed commitment to the work for one more year. But if by the autumn of 1963 there had not been any conversions or any other signs of grace, Tom would resign from the pastor of Drummondville. There were no new conversions. And in October 1963, Tom resigned as the pastor, which came as a complete surprise to the church. He was 52. How would he support his family? He and Marge had no savings, no retirement benefits, and no house to live in. He knew that he could immediately receive invitations from English-speaking churches in other parts of Canada. He could go there and be the pastor. But as far as he was concerned, that was simply not an option. God had called him to French Canada, and he would not leave Quebec. There were no vacant churches at that time in his area, and he had no energy or drive left to begin a new work elsewhere. And so it was time to find a full-time job, to set aside full-time vocational ministry. And while hunting around for suitable employment, Tom stumbled across a newspaper advertisement for a competition for a job with the federal government as a French-English translator. Now, Tom had spent his ministry faithfully and carefully translating his Bible and his sermons from English into French, and so he was perfect for this job. He received top marks in the entrance test and was offered the job. And this opened up a new mission field for Tom. No sooner had he started work as a translator than he was praying for and talking with colleagues at work about the gospel. But Tom also found himself still preaching regularly, and he had growing lists of people to visit and care for. You see, the truth is, Tom never stopped being a pastor. He was no longer paid for it, 
and a certain burden and expectation had been lifted from him, but he still plodded on in Christian service and ministry. He became the unpaid assistant pastor of the church he had resigned from, working after he came home from his office job. And when the new pastor resigned after two years, he took on the caretaker role. And after the next pastor lasted an even shorter period of time and caused a lot of harm and damage, Tom stepped in again and kept the small church going. Incredibly, the years he stepped away from full-time ministry were the years that saw the greatest ministry blessings as God started to answer his many faithful, tear-soaked prayers and the gospel seeds he had planted in the past began to bear fruit. You see, the wind of the Spirit began to blow through Quebec. In 1970, there had only been a handful of evangelical churches in that area, 40 struggling churches. In 10 years, by 1980, there were over 500 evangelical churches in that area. Partly because men like Tom Carson didn't give up, didn't walk away, but kept plodding on in low-key, faithful ministry. The quiet revolution has been called, has been called it passed through Quebec, and in its wake, most of its citizens, especially its younger citizens, were much less tightly tied to the Roman Catholic Church. Yet this has also fermented a spiritual hunger amongst the people. There also arrived at this time some gifted and passionate new pastors and church planters. The pace of growth of evangelical churches and church planting was staggering during this time. There was a new generation of converts who were full of life, full of fatality, and full of zeal. Most of today's pastors and leaders in the church in Quebec emerged from this extraordinary harvest of young converts during that time. By this stage, Tom had retired from his civil service job and he had the time to give back to full-time, unpaid pastoral ministry and devote more time to serve these blossoming churches, providing leadership and preaching. Many of the energetic new pastors and church leaders looked to Tom Carson for their wisdom and godly guidance. The honest, the honest fact is that Tom functioned better when he wasn't expected to be the main leader or pastor. Freed from these sorts of responsibilities and pressure, Tom began to flourish again, doing the things he did past, best, personal work with young Christians, encouraging those who needed it, the gift of hospitality and prayer with folk, and steady workmanlike preaching that always aimed to be faithful with the text. And he also began a church choir as well, which is something I will never, ever do. These years were happy, fruitful, and blessed years. What a blessing to a man who stuck at it. When other pastors came and left, he stuck at it. When times were tough, and it would have been so much easier to take a pastorate in an easier part of the country. If church life was a blessing at this time, family life was to get a lot more difficult. Late in 1982, his wife Marge was mugged on the way home one day, and she dashed her head against the edge of the, the curb. Within a few weeks, those closest to her noticed some changes in her personality that was later diagnosed as Alzheimer's, perhaps triggered by the bang on her head. Tom took over all the household responsibility, and external ministry at this time just about evaporated. Tom's ministry in this season of life was to look after his wife Marge. And not once did any of his children hear a single note of self-pity. He was to write, She looked after me all my life, it's my turn to look after her, and it's a privilege. Every single day to the end of 
his, Marge's life, Tom was at the hospital usually three times a day. Marge died on New Year's Eve, 1989, just six days shy of her 81st birthday. Tom wrote in his diary, my wife was a magnificent woman. She rested utterly in the absolute assurance that God had fully forgiven all of her sins. In just under three years, Tom would follow Marge into eternity as well. How did he spend those last three years of his life? He spent them as he had spent all the rest, serving the Lord. Pretty soon after Marge's death, he was back regularly teaching and preaching, and his visitation list was extensive. Scattered through the journals of his last two years of life are lines like these. Keep me from the sins of old men. A great line. Keep me from the sins of old men. Now, some of the older men in the church are wondering, what are the sins of old men? Don't worry, he listed them in his diary. A tendency to gravitate towards watching television. The temptation to look backward instead of the forward. Sliding towards self-pity. Easy resentment of young men. Keep me from the sins of old men. Tom preached his last sermon just over six weeks before he died. He developed a persistent cough, then a fever, and then he stopped eating. He was taken to hospital, and he never came home again. Tom Carson, born here in Carrickfergus in 1911, died in a hospital in Hull, Canada, on the 26th of October, 1992. For a man who struggled with insecurities and doubts of his own abilities throughout his ministry, his funeral was packed with individuals who recounted the tremendous spiritual impact he had made upon their lives in a quiet, faithful manner. His son, Don, wrote these powerful words. Listen to these words. It's powerful writing. Tom never rose very far in denominational structures, but hundreds of people in the Quebec area testify how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer lists. That's a good line. Not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer lists. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on television, no mention in Parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Tom won entrance to the only throne room that matters, not because he was a good man or a great man. He was, after all, the most ordinary of pastors, but because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him he longed to hear say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now the purpose this evening of this biographical sketch is not simply to pass an evening service, but to encourage and challenge all of us who are believers as we live and serve the same Lord and Savior that Tom Carson lived and served before us. Now, we usually read biographies of Christians who've done something extraordinary. William Carey, Charles Spurgeon, Amy Carmichael. 
But there's something peculiarly helpful about hearing stories of ordinary people. Tom Carson was a plotter. The words good and faithful servant apply so well to a life devoted to ministry in a difficult and barren place. What does our church need today? What does Carrick Baptist need? We need ordinary Christians. People who are faithful, people who are committed, people who are sacrificial, even when we don't see much fruit. We need people with servant hearts like Tom Carson. See, God doesn't ask us to be famous or successful or have these amazing ministries and service for him. What does God ask of his children? He asks us to be faithful. Faithful in our marriages. Faithful as parents. Faithful in any service that we do for our Savior. See, Tom Carson was never disqualified from ministry. He was faithful to his wife. He was faithful to his family. He was faithful to his church. And he was faithful to the ministry that God had called him to do. We need more Tom Carsons. We need plotters. Steve Ramsey has said to me on a number of occasions, slow and steady wins the race. That's true in Christian life and service. Whether you're a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader, a father, a parent, a spouse, whatever it is, wherever God has placed you, whatever area you have to live for Christ, we need faithful people. But what else can we learn from Tom's life? Tom had a passion to reach those who lived around him even when it was tough and nobody seemed interested. May God also give us a passion to reach difficult, barren places. Do you know any difficult, barren places near us? We don't have to look too far. Do we give up? Do we walk away? Do we look for easier options? No, we keep plodding on. Tom kept going. And even when he stepped down from full-time paid ministry, he didn't stop, he didn't give up, he didn't say, I've done my bit and now it's over to somebody else to take it up. He kept serving until he died. Tom gave his whole converted life to serving his Savior. There's a challenge, isn't there? What are we going to give our whole lives to doing? Tom Carson also left a legacy that still speaks and still has an impact today. Back to Hebrews 11. He being dead still speaks. There are churches today that are building upon the years of sowing for the gospel that Tom did in Quebec. As the Apostle Paul writes, one plants, another waters, but it's God who gives the increase. Another legacy Tom has given the world is found in his son, Don, who wrote this biography. Don Carson is today one of the leading evangelical scholars and Bible teachers in the world. He's a prolific writer. Many of his books are in my study. I use them when I'm preparing sermons to preach here on a Sunday, and he travels the world teaching God's Word. He actually preached in our church about five years ago in the old building, and he was over to speak at the Baptist Pastors Conference and we had the privilege of having him speak one Sunday evening. Don Carson is a blessing to the church today, but his life had been greatly impacted and molded by a quiet, faithful, godly father. That's a challenge to us as parents. May our lives, may our service, may our witness, may our faithfulness in small things have a positive spiritual impact upon our children as well. 
Tom Carson is a pastor. I wish I could have known him. He was an ordinary man, an ordinary pastor, who labored faithfully in a tough mission field. And may God raise up many more ordinary, faithful, committed believers like Tom Carson. Let's pray as we think about these spiritual lessons.